Good morning, church. I'm going to give you a peek behind the curtain real quick about how we come up with these ideas for sermons and what that looks like. So Patrick is our senior minister, our lead minister, and his official title is preaching minister. And so Patrick comes up with a lot of these ideas on his own through various things he's reading and studying and and those type of things. Well, he came up with this idea, and I was totally on board. But then he goes the next step to assigning me a text for this sermon series. And so the next slide shows you my text for this morning. There you go. Acts 21, verse 7 through 22, verse 21, which is a long, long text. And so I want to spare you just a little bit from just getting up here and reading it. I want to retell the story. I want to tell it as well as I can. You're welcome to open up your Bibles to that, follow along, you know, check me, make sure I'm doing and saying the right things. But I don't want to just read this word for word. So Paul is in a town called Caesarea. He's in an area called Caesarea, and he's met with these Christians in Caesarea, and and this church has just loved him. He's been there for a while, but then he has the weirdest thing happen to him. He's encountered prophets before, but this is weird. This is Ezekiel weird. He has this prophet that comes up to him named Agabus, and Agabus comes up to him and takes Paul's belt off. Now, just imagine, put yourself in Paul's shoes. You're walking around, and a guy comes and takes your belt off. It's strange. Agabus does this. He walks up to Paul, and he binds his own feet. Then he binds his own hands, and he says, if you go to Jerusalem... This is what's going to happen to you. He's like, you could have just told me. You know, (laughs) you didn't have to take my belt off. That's still weird. And the church there, the church in Caesarea, these people that he's been meeting with are a little freaked out by this. Like, Paul, you should stay here. If that's what's going to happen, don't go. It makes sense. But Paul is what we would call resolute. He's fixed in his mind what is going to happen. And he said, listen, guys, listen, friends, listen, church. If I have to go there and die, that's what I'm going to do. And so he goes. He goes on to Jerusalem, and the people in Jerusalem meet him warmly. They meet him, and they like him. They meet him, and they're nice to him. He has a reputation, but the church doesn't seem to care there. All they do is they ask Paul, just go through this ritual of purification, go through this process, and everything will be just fine. So Paul agrees. He agrees to go through this purification. And it's seven days. So day one goes by and everything's fine. Day two goes by, everything's fine. All the way up to day seven. But there's some people there. Not church people, just people who've heard about Paul. And they're reminded on day seven that he is there. So he goes into the temple. He goes to the temple where he's going to make a sacrifice. It was what was required in the law. He was going along with it. He was fine with it. And some Jews from Asia who happen to hate Paul are there. And these guys just start getting the crowd riled up. And things escalate so quickly that before you know it, they are attempting to kill Paul. (laughs) And all he was doing 
was going through this purification ritual. They seized Paul. They start making these wild accusations against him, that he had broken the law, that he had brought Gentiles into this inner court where they were not allowed, and that he was just profaning the name of God. Those are big accusations. Those are death accusations. They drag Paul out of the temple and they start savagely beating him, start trying to kill him. That's when this tribune, the tribune's a military official, shows up. And when this military official shows up, they do the thing that military officials are going to do. They arrest the guy that's getting beat up. Don't stop the crowd, stop him. <laughs> Clearly he did something wrong. So they arrest him. They bring a group of troops down there. And of course, they ask the crowd, who is this guy and what did he do? And the crowd just starts shouting out all sorts of wild accusations against him. The crowd is just getting more and more fed up. They've got Paul in shackles, and they still are trying to kill him. So, so this tribune and his officials say, okay, let's pull him back to the armory, pull him back to where we keep our weapons, <laughs> pull him back over here, and then we'll take care of it. So they're dragging Paul away, and Paul says to this tribune, he says, hey, can I say something to the crowd real quick? <laughs> this crowd that's been trying to kill him. They think that Paul is this Egyptian that's been taking this band of 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness, but then they figure out that's not who he is, and so this tribune says, yeah, you know, why not? You know, they're just trying to kill you. Why don't we let you speak? Doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's what he does. And so Paul gets up on these steps, and he starts motioning to the crowd, everybody calm down, everybody get quiet. And the crowd that wants to kill him calms down and gets quiet. And Paul says this, he says, listen, let me give my defense. First off, I am a Jew. And so for this crowd of Asian Jews and this group of people in Jerusalem, that is a good thing. It's good. Okay, you're a Jew. Good. Okay, we, we've got some similarity here. Maybe we can work things out. Second thing he says is, I learned everything I know at the feet of Gamaliel. He's like, oh, that's name dropping. That is. That's not saying, hey, I, I, I learned this stuff from a guy. I, no, that's saying, I learned this from the guy that's the best. When you have your list of rabbis, when they do the power ranking of rabbis in the ancient world, Gamaliel's close to the top. And so they hear that and they say, okay, so he probably knows what he's talking about if he followed Gamaliel around. That's good, 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 good. Third thing he says gets the crowd on his side. I persecuted the way. And the way is their shorthand for Christians. They didn't have a title for them yet, so they just called them the way. He says, I persecuted those people because I was zealous for the law just like all of you. Ah, we like this guy. Crowd's on his side. They're like, okay, maybe we shouldn't be trying to kill him. Maybe there's something else going on. The credentials are good. If you had wanted to have a role model for your Jewish children, he would fit the bill with that type of description. He's pure-blooded, highly educated, zealous follower of God, prototype Jew. But Paul goes on. This is what gets him in a little bit of trouble. 
says, I was going down the road to Damascus because I was going to persecute these people of the way. I was going to persecute them. I had orders from you elders who were here. And in order to bind up and persecute these people, I was just going down the road. When out of nowhere, a great light appears. And and all of us saw this light. All of us saw this light just come down. And it was the weirdest thing. We didn't know what was happening. And out of that light, somehow, I heard a voice that said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I don't hear lights talk very often. And so I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And so I said, okay, if that's who you are, what do you want from me? He said, go to Damascus and you'll be told what to do. And so Saul says, I went on to Damascus and it was great. I I did. And there was this guy named Ananias. You might know of him. He's such a well-respected Jewish guy. I, I went there and he's so devout according to the law. And he was able to give me back my sight. I was blind and then I could see. It was great. Then he says, the God of our ancestors has chosen you, Saul, to hear his voice, to see the righteous one, to know his will, so that you should be the witness to all the world of what you have seen and heard. And so naturally, I got up and I was baptized and my sins were washed away. I called on the name of Jesus because of this experience. And so I came back to Jerusalem after this, came to the temple to pray. I fell into a trance, as I am known to do from time to time. And Jesus said to me, hurry up, get out of here, because they don't want to accept your testimony. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And if you know anything about Jew-Gentile relations... That's the point where they go from being completely on Paul's side to wanting to kill him again. The mob realizes what he's saying, they hear his words, they process his words, and they try to kill him again. This is not half the ending to the story. (laughs) You expect Paul to get up and be able to preach this message and 6,000 people come to know Jesus on the spot just not what happens. Paul was telling the story, telling the people who just tried to kill him his story, his conversion story. And his story makes them want to kill him even more. So what do we do with a story like this? If I'm thinking about Jordan, what do I do with a story like this? I see two parts to Paul's story. He gets up and he's able to teach this story, and I see two parts. And the first part is this. Paul had a plan for his life, and he was executing that plan for his life. He was a good Jew. He learned at the feet of the finest rabbi in the country, in the city. It was great. He was zealous. He was working hard for the elders because he was on a trajectory within his career to become one of them, to become a rabbi. He was advancing in his career. He was moving up the ladder. He was becoming one of those guys that he was so zealous to work for. 
He was gaining prestige and honor and credibility so that he could be just like them, just like the ones he served. And if you're anything like me, you have had a plan for your life as well. It might not be that you've executed it, but you've had a plan. I want to share with you what my plan has been for me, and you can mock me and laugh at this all you want. By the time I'm 65, I want to have a lot of money. It's a good plan, right? Yeah, I like it. We'll see. I want to live in a big home. You know, the ones that, the, the home in my mind, it, size really doesn't matter all that much when I think of homes. The thing that I've always wanted in a home is a personal movie theater. And I, I don't think I'll ever have one, but that's the goal. That's what I'm working towards. I want to lead a big church of thousands of people, and most likely in Texas or Tennessee, because, you know, that's closer to where I'm from and my mentality. I want to be famous. I want to have book deals and be able to speak to millions of people and, you know, be able to say, hey, look at me. And you know who I am without me having to tell you. The way I want to retire someday is to become the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys. and simultaneously own a home in the mountains. So I don't know how that's going to work out because the mountains of Dallas aren't that impressive. (laughs) But as I've thought about my life, as I've thought about what I'm aspiring to, those are some of the images that have come out. Those are the things that I feel like I've worked towards. I'm sure you have plans too. You know, maybe you're creating a little nest egg so that someday you can retire rich and happy and free of problems, because we all know that money makes you free of problems. Maybe for you, it's working your way up the corporate ladder. Maybe it's just making your way up to the top to take over a company or a division of a company, and maybe just attain the success that you want. Maybe you're all about family, and and so for you, you want to have the perfect spouse and the perfect kids and the perfect farm to raise your kids on and and to watch them all become, in the words of one of our members, strapping young gentlemen uh, (laughs) and give you perfect little grandchildren. Maybe that's what you've been thinking. Maybe you're hoping to become the next sports star. I know my child is hoping to become the next sports star. He's already, he watches the Olympics channel most nights um, and, and thinks he's going to be a bobsledder. So that's, that's fun. But maybe you're hoping to work your way through college or the minor leagues and, and get your chance to prove that you're the greatest investment that the Minnesota Twins have ever made. Paul had plans. His plans were to become prestigious and to work his way up, and he was actively doing that. He had credentials, but his story keeps going. The second half of Paul's story is how God changed Paul's plans. God blinded Saul. He blinded Paul. When he encountered the resurrected Jesus on this trip, it changed his life forever. And in some very concrete ways, he was blind. Most of us haven't experienced that, but he did. God transformed Paul. He was no longer Paul zealous for finding Christians who belonged to the way and then persecuting them. Paul was zealous for finding people and leading them to the way. (laughs) That's a huge transition. 
God sent Paul to the Gentiles. Paul was not asked whom he desired to deliver his message to. I bet if you asked him, the places that he was sent might not have ranked at the top. He was told that he was God's instrument for taking this message to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, to those outside the law whom he has never associated with. Seems to me that Paul's initial plan and God's plan were not aligned. What God had for Paul to do was not the same as what Paul had for Paul to do. My friend Charlton is a minister in New Mexico, and he wrote this one day. He said, Jesus commands his hearers to give up their dreams and to trust his instead. And as I read this story, it's kind of what I hear. Thinking through this story over the past week has raised a single question for me, and it is simply this. Are our stories worth telling? And I've wrestled with this this week. I have really questioned, is my story worth telling? And as I've read this story in Acts, as I've considered Paul's story, it became clear to me that the only reason Paul's story was worth telling was because it became a part of God's bigger story, a part of God's conspiracy of grace. As I've thought about this this week, I think for us it is the exact same. Our stories will only be worth telling if they are part of God's bigger story, a part of his conspiracy of grace. I told you a few moments ago about the plans I have for my life, most notably retiring to be the Cowboys chaplain how I saw things shaping up and what I have been trying to accomplish throughout not only my career, but through my life. And God has thrown some significant kinks into my plan. In no way did I think, did I ever plan to be in Minnesota. I mean, you get it, right? (laughs) I grew up in Texas. I had no idea winter was a season. I had no idea the temperatures kept going down after zero. (laughs) I live in a place where Cowboys games are not nationally broadcast every week. I don't know what to do with this. But God opened a door, and we prayed about it a lot. I sought wise counsel from people who knew me and knew my desires and my heart. I've been here over three years now. My plans and God's plans might not be aligned, but when I listen to God, things seem to work out. Second thing is that in no way did I ever plan to be another associate minister, learning to defer to someone else's leadership, when everything in me is saying, Jordan, you should make all of the decisions. My mind, my heart, my gut are all yelling at me, Jordan, make all the decisions, and God is prompting me to be here, teaching me to humble myself as much as I hate that, and learn to follow. God's plans and my plans might not be aligned. In no way did I plan to be a foster parent. 
much less a foster parent of two kids. Much less a foster parent of two kids while raising one of our own. I would have never planned on doing this because in my mind, it would distract me from the goals and my own plans. But God worked on me through my wife, opened up my heart, required me to open up my home, my wallet, my time, my energy, my sleep, to serve and love these two kids that God has given to us. I believe that the only way our stories become worth telling is when we stop telling God no and start telling God, just let me be a part of your bigger story. I believe that God is disrupting our stories and our plans and inviting us to be a part of what he is doing saying, stop trying to do this on your own. Just join in what I'm already doing. And if your story is not worth telling, is that because God hasn't acted? Or is it because you have not acted at God's prompting? Has God not acted? Or is your life so scripted that there's not any room for God to act? And if and when God does act, it feels so far outside of our own plans that we just hurry to make everything line up with what we wanted in the first place. For many of us, there's a need to just simply surrender to God. To willingly let go of what we desire and hope for and to grab a hold of this life that God is inviting us to be a part of. Stop focusing on your own plans and become an accomplice with the Spirit of God in this conspiracy of grace. I need to hear that today. I do. Everything in me is saying, Jordan, you've got plans. Execute your plans. But at best, in this in the reality of things, I'm a supporting actor. I'm not the lead. That part's already taken. That part belongs to God. So we need to play our part in this story. Before I close this morning, I want to say this. I know that some of you feel like you are just barely treading water right now. That, that life is just so hard that getting through the day is almost enough. But you cannot see God because of the pain that is always right in front of your face. The pain that's always confronting you. And I still believe that God wants you to be a part of his story. I believe that God is sometimes prompting us through the pain. I heard a story about a person, this woman who was having to have dialysis. And in the midst of going to these weekly appointments for dialysis, in the midst of that treatment, she recognized that the person sitting next to her had to be there every week as well. And that person couldn't just get up and leave. <laughs> they had to sit there. And so she believed that God was giving her this incredible opportunity to share her faith, and that opportunity allowed her to lead someone to Jesus. In the pain, she saw the opportunity. I've known a guy who goes to support groups because life has just been so hard for him. 
You know, there, there are a lot of different things that he has to work through. And in the midst of those groups, he's learned to connect with other people, to serve people who are in need, just like he recognizes that he is. And coming out of that group, he's now able to talk about the transformation that he has experienced because he surrendered to God in those moments. You know, some people can't leave home because of illness to their loved ones. And in the midst of that suffering, God asks us what we're made of. And he prompts us to serve these people. And I've seen so many people who do this, and they're able to talk about the way they see Jesus in the faces of those that they serve. Our stories can be worth telling as long as they are part of God's bigger story, his conspiracy of grace. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father God, we are so grateful for your presence, your actions, your activity in our lives and in the world around us. God, we pray that as we go on, that we will let go of the things that we are holding on to that are keeping us from taking advantage and taking the opportunity to follow you as fully as we can. God, you are doing wonderful, wonderful things in this world. Help us to see those things and become a part of them. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.